Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is season one, and today we're talking about how our backgrounds shape the reading lenses we bring to any work of literature and to the literature of the Bible specifically. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird, and I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Hey, Jennifer. It's fun to be back on this podcast with you, having another conversation together. It is. It's so fun to meet you in podcast land. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So listen, would you tell me about yourself as a reader? What are you reading right now, besides the Bible and biblical scholarship? Sure. I will say I did just finish Maggie Nelson's exquisite memoir, The Argonauts, which was a winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. And it's hard to describe it succinctly, but one of the reasons I liked it is she's giving voice to non-traditional families and even non-traditional, you know, a variety of bodily experiences. I really enjoyed that. I have to admit, I, I am trying to finish Midnight's Children. I've had to restart that a couple of times, but I love the way Sam and Rushdie plays with words, the way he kind of pulls us in and flips things around. I am also reading a few things you said other than biblical scholarship. So for the other courses I teach besides biblical studies, I'm reading right now with students um, an introduction to queer theology, Queer Theology, Just the Basics by Chris Greeno. And I'm reading some Buddhist writings, environmental writings called Dharma Rain. What about you? What are you reading right now? I just started Louise Erdrich's The Sentence, mm. which is a novel about the community connected with a haunted bookstore in Minneapolis around the time of the George Floyd murder and also the uprisings that followed the murder. Like you, a lot of what I read is connected to my job as a literature professor, but I also like to be reading something just for myself. The sentence is something I'm reading with students in a literature seminar. And for myself right now, I'm reading an autobiography of Henry Nouwen, which he calls Prodigal Son. I would describe Nouwen as a mystic, and I have to say the behavior that he describes as prodigal is teaching at Harvard rather than working in a community for people with developmental disabilities. I I could really show him prodigal, I have to say. (laughs) I I got a whole nother level of prodigal. Yeah, yeah. We might define that word differently, right? Yeah, yeah. Privilege is an interesting thing. It is. I also want to ask you, when did you first start reading or hearing biblical literature, the Jewish and Christian scriptures? Yeah. And I think this is something that I wanted to share a little bit more than just a brief intro on, partly because it does define me so much, as both as a person and as a scholar. And I think it's important for our listeners to know this about me. I, this is one of the pieces I have to say I really enjoy the way your experience and mine, the way they complement each other so well, given our backgrounds. I grew up in a United Methodist church. Our family was quite active my entire childhood. What that means to me is Sunday school and worship services every Sunday, evening youth groups, summer service projects, vacation Bible school, like you name it, we were there. And it was kind of our social group. 
So part of what I'm trying to hint at here is that the people in the Bible were very real to me. They were my ancestors or they are my ancestors in the faith. And I took it all to heart in a very literal way. They are in the mental framework for me in terms of the way I think about church. And it was happening at a level that I really wasn't conscious of. I didn't realize that was happening. In particular, when I have students who didn't grow up in a church setting or a synagogue setting, This is a really important element to try to understand the extent to which these stories are taken in by people. So then in my teens, I took a bit of a conservative turn, if you will, theologically speaking. The United Methodist Church I was a part of was kind of mainstream, middle of the road in terms of the political or social engagement. But I was, I think, yearning for a more lively and even more what ends up being a fundamentalist or literalist handling of scripture. And I kind of was drawn to that. And I was a leader in that kind of a community for about seven years. During that time, I was attending non-denominational churches, which is a funny label in and of itself to call it non-denominational. That was where I was. And the way the Bible was being read and taught, and in my case, memorized, was really the focus of my life for those seven years. I memorized scripture so that I could refer to it in prayers or even as I talked to people. I really wanted to have God's word with me every moment of the day for comfort and, in a sense, as a resource for wisdom throughout the day. You know, I will say that my engagement with the Bible was very focused on an evangelical, personal salvation kind of a way of looking at things. Part of what goes into that kind of a lens is typically that people think of the Bible as God's word straight from God, you know, kind of almost in a channeling way through the pen of the people writing it, though I don't think most people stop to think about that. But it was the inerrant word of God, you know, it was utterly trustworthy in all of these ways, right? And I usually, I like to share this example of the extent to which I had taken in a particular reading of the Bible. I grew up with female pastors within the United Methodist Church, but in this very conservative swing, seven-year chapter of my life, if you will, my mother got ordained, and on the day of her ordination, (laughs) I looked at her and said, Mom, how can you get ordained when it's against God's will, against God's word for women to be ordained? Oh, no. I know. What 20-year-old actually says that to their mother? I I did. So there you have it. Actually, 20 is a good age to say <laughs> such things to one's mother. I, I still think she was just an incredibly patient, kind woman in that moment. You know, she told me her story, something I couldn't actually question. But that's where I was. You know, I was taking in God's word at that kind of a level. And even to the point of denying all these other factors around me, my own experiences in the past, or in this case, my mother is incredibly well gifted for ministry. And then we're getting to the good stuff. One day, someone shared a paper with me in which she was engaging the passage some people know of as the Martha Mary passage, something like that. It's in Luke's gospel. But she was reading it in a way that utterly challenged my conviction about women not being called to be ordained. And it's an interesting story through which that to be challenged. But here's the thing. What people tend to take that passage to be saying is that Jesus is saying to Martha, you're worried about a lot of things. Mary chose the better thing. Deal with it kind of a thing. And Mary choosing the better thing being to sit at his feet and learn from him. 
But the Greek also upholds a very different take on it, which is to say that Jesus turns to Martha and says, you're worried and distracted by all these things. That Mary chose for herself what she wanted to do is better. And in this paper, the woman writing the paper referred to me by name as a woman who was behaving like Martha, which is to say, giving in to social expectations of me as a woman instead of doing what I wanted to do or what I was good at. It might not seem like such a big deal. I don't know how you hear that story. I know I've shared, I think, that story with you before, but I don't know how others hear this story. But in that moment, given who I was, the way I engaged scripture, my personal relationship with Jesus, all of that coming together in this moment, to have Jesus himself affirm me in that kind of a way, there was some sort of almost mystical cosmic shift that took place. And I don't know how to describe it except to say it felt like something in the atmosphere opened up and shifted and reconnected. It was life shifting for me to have scripture affirm that, specifically Jesus. So this kind of threw me off kilter. You know, I don't know what to do with this. But shortly thereafter, I ended up going to seminary to study the biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. I wanted to be the one engaging those passages. If there was this kind of a potential for a different reading of the Bible to come out of it, you know, going to seminary, however, introduced me to all these other ideas I hadn't anticipated. I without knowing it, right, I was going to be required to or hadn't thought through the fact that I was going to be required to learn about church history and the development of church doctrine and all kinds of stuff. And it was content that really shook my evangelical framework. And it was really challenging. But ultimately, it was quite empowering and freeing for me. So this process of seeking what the Bible is saying, trying to grasp it, grapple with it myself in the original languages as close as we can come to what it would have been saying, that sent me down this this road of discovery. And then I went on from there to PhD work in New Testament. So yeah, my engagement with the Bible started young and is central to why I do what I do. So that long-winded response. Um, what about you, Jean? When did you first start reading or hearing biblical literature? Well, I will certainly tell you about that, but I have to comment on <laughs> the story that you just told us. I know your history, and we've talked about this before, but I never heard you tell the story exactly that way. And when I was listening, it really sounded to me like a conversion story. When you speak about that moment, when Jesus spoke to you through the Martha and Mary story, what it really sounded like to me was when Paul describes his road to Damascus experience, and he says, the scales fell from my eyes, which is a metaphor that I take to mean there's a, a large shift, a seismic adjustment in mindset and perspective. And it sounds like that happened to you. And that happened to me too. <laughs> Jesus spoke to me through scripture, which I will share a little bit about. But you asked me about my background, so let me make sure to get to that. So I grew up Catholic, which is a tradition that doesn't emphasize Bible reading as much as Protestant practice. I think maybe these days Catholics read the Bible more than we did when I was growing up. 
I heard bits and pieces of the Older and Newer Testaments during Mass, and there were children's Bibles around the house, so I knew some of the greatest hits of the Christian Bible, Noah's Ark, Samson and Delilah, Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding, and the stories definitely fascinated me, especially the Jesus stories, but I didn't start studying the Bible seriously until after I got a PhD in literature and became a professor. Now, as you know, when you get a PhD, you learn how to read critically. You learn that texts have multiple meanings. And you also learn that the way that we read really affects how we understand a text. So when I first started reading the Bible seriously, which was because someone was retiring and they were leaving their course, the Bible, as literature, and I did not want that course to go away from the curriculum. When I was an undergrad at my school, it was called Old Testament, New Testament, and I took those classes and they were very important to me because the Bible is just one of those books like the Sophocles trilogy or Dante's Inferno or Shakespeare or Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway or Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, just one of those books that if you're going to be an English professor, you simply have to know something about. So I started reading it professionally, and then I did not want our English and creative writing majors to have no option to study the Bible, so I decided I would learn how to teach it and teach it myself. And then I really fell in love. I'm, I'm fascinated by the Bible intellectually, but somewhere along the way, I also just fell in love with it. And I will share a story, too. I had to put this. I wasn't planning on sharing this, so I'm thinking uh, how to put it maybe delicately. Well, let's just say I had a very colorful adolescence and a very <laughs> colorful time in my 20s, just quite an experience. And I think I'm just a very curious person and a hungry person. And I just wanted to see everything and try everything. And I was in New York City and there were lots of things to try and see and do and experiment <laughs> with. And I did almost all of it, I will say. And I, by the time I started reading the Bible and getting really fascinated with the stories about Jesus, there was uh, there's the one story where Jesus's disciples and also the religious people around him are very annoyed because he keeps sitting down with sinners to eat and they want to know why. Like, why are you having dinner with that person? That person is clearly a, a sinful, not religious, not very correct person. And he says, well, uh, healthy people don't have any need of a physician. I came for the sick people. And I remember reading that one day and thinking, wait a minute, that means you're here for me. And I thought, there's no way that that could be true, right? Jesus couldn't have taught and lived and made a sacrifice for me because I'm just so... You're too much of a playgirl. But that story <laughs> suggested to me, no, it's you're exactly who he came for. And mm. I don't know, I took it to heart. And I just started reading in a different way and experiencing the idea of Jesus differently. The Jesus experience, like my Jesus experience just really changed from that. So that's how things went for me. So I want to shift a little bit because this is literature and culture and the Bible. And I wanted to uh, just bring up this question of how the Bible has influenced and how it continues to influence American culture. For instance, I'm thinking of Marjorie Taylor Greene yes. using the idea of the mark of the beast, 
the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I mean, there are these wild conspiracy theories where people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess Kanye West also made a speech in which he used the phrase the mark of the beast, that you take the vaccine and it injects a microchip and the microchip has the mark of the beast <laughs> and then you have the mark of the beast. And I'm just like, whoa. Wow. So on the one hand, we have people using snippets of revelation to make arguments against vaccines. Sometimes the Bible gets used to condemn gay people or sideline women, which I think is a terrible use of the Bible. I I just wonder what you wanted to say about that. How are some of the ways that you see the Bible working in culture? Right. Actually, your reference to what MTG, I don't want to say her name. MTG. Got it. (laughs) What What she was doing and others resonates with me from my very conservative fundamentalist time frame. And again, I think my background with this is a part of what does drive me to want to educate beyond this more fundamentalist or conservative thinking, because I was in college when we first started getting to use ATM cards. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but at the time, I was in a group of people who read scripture kind of the way Marjorie... Taylor does. Mm. And there were people looking at this whole mark of the beast on your right hand or your forehead. Mm. And they were imagining that we might have chips placed under our skin, you know, on our hand or forehead that we would be using to check out of grocery stores one day. And this ATM card was the first step in that direction. And don't give in to it. And I literally remember the first time I used an ATM card at a grocery checkout and I hesitated. Mm. (laughs) I stood there thinking, Am I getting into something I shouldn't? And now that must sound silly to people. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. That's where I was. That is the way the community I was a part of read scripture. And I had this wrestling thing in my head in the moment. I'm like, no, you know, that's silly. So I get it. I get the MTG thing. But I also think, and I think this is more back to your point, the fear mongering and the scare tactics and the way that's being used to control people concerns me. Yes, I'm absolutely there with you. I constantly think about the way faith communities teach people to engage not just religious texts, but the the whole framework of faith and what it's meant to be about. But specifically as a biblical scholar, yeah, I think about the way a particular reading of these texts is also then going to influence the way you behave in public or the ideas that you promulgate into, you know, the public space, if you will. So... Yeah, I haven't spent as much time perhaps studying or or having a platform for those kinds of conversations and ideas, but it does. It does go through my mind all the time. Mm. Thank you for sharing that about how you actually did used to have a reading lens that would permit those kinds of readings of something like the mark of the beast, the phrase and the image. You really helped me have compassion for people who read that way. And what I flashed on when you were sharing that is that I think unless we have the opportunity to read in a lot of different communities, we're not even aware of the reading lenses that we bring to scripture. If you're Mm -hmm. acculturated to have a particular reading lens to think that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, or to think that William Shakespeare's plays are 100% brilliant and fantastic and perfect in every respect as though there couldn't be racism in them or there couldn't be Mm. sexism or anti-Semitism in them. If you're raised to worship Shakespeare, you'll read Shakespeare with those worshipful lenses. And sometimes I think we're not even aware 
of the way that we read. And my wish for myself and my wish for everyone listening is that we would reflect on where we got our reading lenses. How was I taught to read the Bible? How was I taught to read other works of literature? Where did the way that I read come from? And I appreciate your comments also about how you you shifted reading lenses. Going to get a PhD in biblical studies, obviously, that'll really shift your reading lens. And I, mine shifted the other way because <laughs> I yep. started out reading as a postmodern feminist academic, and I'm still a postmodern feminist academic, and... I now also read with some fundamentalists and some literalists, and I actually really like moving through different kinds of interpretive communities. I I like that. As you might have guessed, my Catholic upbringing didn't stick. (laughs) Um, (laughs) First, I became a wild woman, and then I became a Quaker in my later (laughs) 20s. And I practiced Quaker tradition for close to 20 years. I love silent worship. After I became a mom, I started attending the United Church of Christ in my town because my lively son was not into silent worship. (laughs) (laughs) And my son's father and I divorced, and then I remarried, and the man I married had been a member of a suburban megachurch for decades. And my son, whose ideal is loud worship, (laughs) wanted to start going to church there. And so, of course, wherever he wanted to go, I went. Now, he doesn't go to that church community anymore, but I'm still connected to that community. And I would describe it as a a multi-ethnic evangelical congregation that welcomes women in teaching and leadership. That's the way that my church is a little bit different from other evangelical congregations, but it does give me the opportunity to read with people who read very differently from me. And I like that synergy. I don't always jive with the way folks at this church talk about God, and I think I do read the Bible pretty differently from most of them, but I can't give up the ethnic and economic diversity and even the diversity of reading lenses. I actually really like it because I never used to read with fundamentalists or evangelicals. I just didn't know them. And frankly, it was very easy for me to vilify them when I didn't know them. But now that I know many evangelicals and fundamentalists, I cannot vilify them. And that's a good spiritual exercise for me. Mm -hmm. And I love my church. All the Protestant churches I attended were really, really white. And I now (laughs) can't do without ethnic diversity in my worship. So what about you? Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other religious cultures that you've experienced? Sure. Actually, I haven't really experienced much religion beyond a Christian framework. So, But I have been exposed to lots of different Christian denominations, even branches of the church. So I've spent time attending Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic. Of course, Methodist is somewhere between Roman Catholic and Protestant, but um, I've also been to a multitude of Protestant varieties. I've spent time in very wealthy congregations in Manhattan and very poor and rural community churches where the church is the one main part of the community holding it all together. I've been in Pentecostal holiness worship. I've been in places where people were being slain in the spirit and speaking in tongues. I remember specifically not turning away the Jehovah's Witnesses when they came to my door in college, but I wanted to have a conversation with them. (laughs) Yeah, I've been predominantly in white spaces, as you noted, at least for your earlier life. But I've also been in very what 
felt to me like liberatingly expressive black church worship, which is which was really fun. Actually, during PhD work, I did decide to spend some time at Friday night Shabbat services, partly because I wanted to hear the, the Hebrew being spoken. I had really enjoyed the Hebrew in my seminary days, and that was one way for me to access that. Mm. I really liked those Friday night calming, centering kinds of spaces. But I also wanted to circle back to one of the things that you said about these different reading lenses and the communities. As I listen to you talk about the community that you're a part of in particular, I'm reminded of an element of certainty that people of faith, and in particular in a certain kind of more conservative setting, it might be more common than in progressive or in settings that have more diversity in terms of the people there. But I remember thinking that the way I was being taught to read the scriptures in this kind of seven-year evangelical space, there was a lot of certainty and belief in correctness Mm -hmm. that I embodied and embraced. And I do wonder if I'd been, I don't know, engaging a variety of reading lenses or communities if I would have held on to that so strongly. Mm. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I did. And I know that a lot of people do. And so that's, again, for me, is one of the other pieces I love about these conversations with you is producing and demonstrating that there are multiple ways of reading any given passage this issue of right and wrong becomes very blurry. And really, at least from my experiences, this issue of ethics and morality and how it plays out becomes very important, more so than having holding on to a, an idea from the Bible. And that's what we need to endorse. I bring a different set of questions to the Bible than I used to. But I do find all of these, all of these dynamics, all of these issues really fascinating. I do too. I have to tell you that I really surprised myself by how much I came to love reading in a community with evangelicals, some of whom are literalist readers, not everybody in that community that I read with. I wouldn't describe everyone as an inerrantist or as a literalist. There's quite a bit of diversity in terms of how people read there, often depending on whether they went to seminary or not. But I enjoy it much more than I thought I ever would. And I think it's because I love book groups. I Mm. love literature. I love reading with people. And I love reading with other passionate readers. So what I do share with evangelicals, inerrantists, is a passion for the Bible. My passion is different. I'm not looking for certainty. And I almost never find certainty in the Bible. I find a lot of fantastic questions and a lot of fantastic tensions in the Bible and a lot of food for thought and a lot of wisdom Mm -hmm. and a lot of insight. I find all of those things. I don't find certainty, but I do share with the most committed readers of the Bible, even if they read really differently from me, just the love of puzzling over a book together. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. an experience I love. That's what led me into getting a PhD in literature and building my life around literature. And so in a way, it's natural for me to gravitate toward communities who are also very focused on a collection of particular literary works. It's almost like in a book group, you all read, I don't know, Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine and then talk about it. That experience of reading the same thing with people and then talking about it. I love that. That's what called me into my profession. And I like doing it when I'm not teaching. And I have to say, 
I've been an academic for over 25 years, and it's nice to read with people who are not academics. I like that. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. I wonder if we should wrap up this particular podcast with our our exchange about our favorite books. I know that you have a favorite book or even maybe a favorite moment um, in the Bible. Would you say more about that? I do. So my favorite (laughs) book of the Bible is Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. And uh, yesterday in class, I was I teach the Bible as literature. We were talking about our favorite characters and no one asked me, but mine is Daniel. (laughs) And it's my favorite because it calls out the gift of reading literature. Daniel chapter one, verse 17 describes Daniel and his compatriots as gifted in literature and interpretation. And the New Revised Standard Version says this, quote, God gave them learning and skill in all letters and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. I actually like the New Living Translation better. It's my son's Bible, the Bible for Teenagers, because it says that God gave Daniel the gift of understanding literature. (laughs) And I love that. I just love the idea that God cares about literature and that when God distributes gifts, some people get the ability to understand literature. That gift does not top the list of American marketable skills, but the book of (laughs) Daniel suggests that literature and interpretation matter. So I am down with that. How about you, Jennifer? Do you have a favorite? Actually, I don't. But what I can say is that I have, for the last 10 or 15 years, been quite drawn to both the book of Amos as an example of a Hebrew Bible prophet and the Gospel of Luke. In my reading of Luke, it's quite complex in terms of some of the dynamics and the rhetoric in it. But what I do love about it both of them, is that they both highlight social justice. At least in the language of the biblical texts, there's a claim that this is important to God. It's what's expected of the people of God. I really like that idea. And I appreciate that what that is doing is indicating this thread throughout the centuries of this is a human interaction or a human reality that was true 3,000 years ago and is still true today. And I I love when you can see those moments in the Bible for ourselves today. Oh, I love that. I had a guest speaker in my Bible as Literature class yesterday, and he said, the Bible enables us to experience another kind of diversity. So in addition to experiencing ethnic and economic and ideological diversity, we could experience diversity of time frame (laughs) when we read ancient literature. And I thought, that's great, diversity of time. I'm going to use that as an argument for why people might love reading ancient literature. There's one more thing I just want to say before we close. I I want to make clear that I don't think that reading the Bible as literature takes away from its status as sacred text, not for me. For me, there's never any feeling that the Bible is just literature. There's no just in front of the word literature ever for me. Literature is sacred to me. I use it for life navigation. I use it to acquire wisdom. I revere it. I know that some readers place the Bible in a completely different metaphysical category from other literatures, and I respect that. I also know some people don't even think of the Bible as literature, which I think helps them afford it special status in their hearts. 
For me, I have to say the Bible is both sacred and inspired and a collection of literary works. I read it devotionally and critically. It's a both and for me. It's not an either or. Yes, I hear you on that. When I hear you talking about rating the Bible as literature, I am reminded of what you were highlighting there, that for some people to think of it as literature almost feels like you're not taking it seriously enough because many people are taught to see it as special and different. And so I do think it's important to acknowledge that possibility for people when we're talking about the poetry of the Bible or when we're talking about this myth in the Bible, things like that. But I'm with you. I appreciate that comment about how it's both and for you. Well, that was fun. It was. Thank you very much. Yes, thinking about our lenses, right? How we got them yes. and what they do for us and the way we read. Always a good conversation. Yes, it is. And I will put this question out to our listeners. What are your reading lenses and where did your reading lenses come from? Thank you, everybody, for joining Jennifer and me to talk about literature, culture, and the Bible. Thank you for listening to Wild Olive, and we hope to see you next time. Take care. Take care. This is Hayden Lee, one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music. And you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You can ask Jean or Jennifer a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Catch you next time.